0: The world energy market has been reshaped in huge and possibly permanent ways after the beginning of the war in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment in The Socialist Program here on Breakthrough News, where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness Is The System When Capitalism Fails To Save Us From Pandemics Or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com that's r d w o l f Professor Wolf,
1: welcome back. Thank you Brian, glad to be here.
0: Professor Wolf, there have been series of articles in the general interest media as well as the financial papers including Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, about how Russia has managed or attempted to manage the impact of sanctions, and especially sanctions against its oil market and other petroleum products, since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine back in February 2022. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal article from just in the past few days. I want to read a couple words to you and to help our audience get a better sense of how this is such a profound shift, or I'm going to get your opinion to see if it is indeed a profound shift in the way the oil market, of course, oil and petroleum products are the central artery to modern industrial economies, how that's impacting both the economy and global politics. Here's the headline Russia's oil ban accelerates shift in global energy flows. Russian crude is increasingly heading to China and India while Middle East producers are trying to sell more oil to Europe. Here's the article. Western sanctions on Russian fossil fuels are accelerating the shift in global energy flows, with China and India increasingly taking advantage of Russian oil discounts and Middle Eastern suppliers redirecting their crew to Europe. Russia is offering deep discounts to Asia's Pacific oil buyers as it tries to retain market share after banning the sale of its crude and petroleum products to countries that were imposing a $60 price cap. And of course, that was the price cap demanded by the US. The cap bars the shipping, financing, or insuring of Russia's seaborne crude unless it's sold for $60 a barrel or less a sanction leveled in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Professor Wolf, at the beginning of the Russian military intervention in Ukraine, when Russia was clearly being evicted from the world economy, which of course is a world economy dominated by Western capitalist powers and Japan, there was the premise that this would be basically the end of Russia's economy. And of course, because it's a major producer and distributor and seller of oil and other petroleum products, it's not just what it produces. It has to have that those products refined. They have to be shipped in ships. Those ships have to be insured. The shipping, the insurance centers, not to mention the financial SWIFT system and banking system, all of these are dominated by Western capitalist powers. And yet Russia has not tanked, so to speak. And in fact, the whole world oil market is being reorganized in a way that maybe one could not have possibly anticipated even a year ago. Anyway, what do you think? Is it important? Is it profound as I'm suggesting? And what what could be the long-term implications?
1: Well, the short answer to your question is, yes, it is a very important development on multiple levels. It is a change, basic change. Exactly how it will play out, it's very hard to know, just like it's very hard to know how this war in Ukraine will end up or play out. So I don't want to go too far into making predictions. I don't believe in them much. So I'd like to focus, if I could, on what already we know, what we can say we know pretty clearly. And here are some of the key ones. Number one, in the immediate aftermath, of Russia's entry into the Ukraine last February, there were very many world leaders who predicted the imminent collapse of the Russian economy. This is an economy well known to be heavily dependent on gas, on oil, on the products of gas and oil, such as fertilizer, etc. And the notion that the west would respond by militarily arming the ukrainians but even much more important for the world economy by a program of massive sanctions let's remember the west seized hundreds of billions of dollars of russian reserves closed them out of the world banking system swift system and so on said they would cut off the oil supply, magically destroy the oil pipelines in the North Sea. We could all go on. We remember most of that. The prognosis was this would be, as it was quoted to be, the mother of all sanctions, far exceeding the sanctions that had been put on Cuba, on Iran, on Russia earlier, and so on. The first thing that we know is that those predictions prove to be false, that the collapse of the Russian economy still has not happened, nor has anything close to that happened. Predictions are still being made, only now we hear it's going to take time, or this is going to be a long drawn-out affair. That's a very different message and a very different tone from the confident predictions that were so completely off base. Was Russia dependent on exporting fuels to Europe? Yes. Did Russia have options? The answer now is yes. They didn't think so back then, the Western powers. They thought their sanction program would, as was said often, bring Russia to its knees. All of that was wrong. Russia has options. And even before I explain what the options were that Russia had and took advantage of, I want to underscore that if Russia has options, so do many other countries in the world. That's what they're now understanding much more dramatically and much more clearly than before this war. In the long run, we may look back on the war in Ukraine as having had, above all else, the social role of convincing massive numbers of countries in the world, relatively smaller countries, that they have options they didn't know they had, that they are not as dependent on the capitalist West as they thought they were, that they can cut deals with China, Russia, India, the BRICS countries that include also Brazil, South Africa, and so on, that are available to them, that they can play the Chinese, Indian, Russian group against the Western capitalist group in a way that nobody could in the previous at least 75 years. Let's remember that for most of the period since the Second World War, It has been the United States leading Western Europe, allied with Japan, that have basically run the world economy and have let everybody know, you have no option, you have to deal with and through us, and if you don't, we will make life very unpleasant for you with sanctions, with hurtful economic policies and political policies and, if necessary, military policies. That's been the truth, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan or many other less well-known but similar stories. So, let me stress, Russia, in scrambling to evade the sanctions much more than the war on the ground in Ukraine horrible as that is but much more important than that war is the sanction effort the sanction war the economic war against russia and it failed i mean there's no no way around that it failed so far i can't predict the future i'm not going to but it failed central to that failure Was the ability of the Russians to redirect oil, gas, liquefied natural gas, and so on, to new and different markets? China, as you mentioned, absolutely. India, a bit of a surprise for the West. Turkey, many other countries are in the process of or have already negotiated the purchase of oil and gas and so on from Russia, etc., etc. And the Russians are able to substitute. Much is made of the fact that they give a discount. Well, the Russians have given discounts in the past. Other sellers of oil and gas give discounts. There's nothing extraordinary about that. In many ways, the Russians are giving discounts from prices of oil that are much higher now than they were several years ago. So even with the discount, revenue is flowing in to the Russians. And for most of the last year, they've been in the very nice position for them of being able to pay many of the costs of their war in Ukraine with the extra revenue they get because the sanctions drove up the price of oil and gas in Europe, and the Russians can find indirect ways of taking advantage of those rising prices in Europe by offering quote-unquote discounts to others. And whatever you hear about discounts, don't make the mistake of misunderstanding the political nature of the business of oil. In many, many ways, oil, petroleum, and everything in the world that depends on petroleum has been central to the fact that the United States was the dominant empire since the demise of the British Empire. We, the U.S., replaced them. The ability of a country like Russia, not only to find oil, but to produce it and to refine it, and now to find global markets outside the ability of the United States to block them, that is a profound shift in all the economic and political relationships. China is flaunting the United States by buying Russian oil. India is flaunting the American empire by buying Russian oil, and they're doing it knowing very well what it means and how this is being handled in the West. It's not even clear that this is sustainable. In other words, what is you may not have thought about is the ramifications of this. For example, and here's the most important one, the immediate suffering is in Europe not in the United States. The United States does not have to import oil, gas the way Europe does. So Europe is in the hot seat if you like, or maybe more accurately at this time of year in the cold seat. It can't afford but pay much higher prices for the oil they now have to scramble to get from somewhere other than Russia. The gas likewise. That's why they're going to the Middle East. That's why they're going all over the world, desperate to find new sources to replace the Russians. And they're having a great deal of trouble for many reasons. And one result, because they have market economies, is that the price of oil and gas has gone crazy in Europe, producing worse inflation in the general economy than we have here in the United States, and particularly threatening their businesses in terms of the energy that the oil provides, and their households in terms of the heat that the oil and the gas provide. And so there's a split going on economically and politically between Europe and the United States. They are allies in their sanctions against Russia. But they are very different in the price being paid by the Europeans, which is much greater economically and politically than the price paid by the United States. And that includes taking into account that the United States pays more of the price of military support for the Ukraine than the Europeans do. And that split is being sharpened as the winter descends because the Europeans are cold, and the Europeans are losing out in competition their capitalists with American capitalists, because they have to pay much more for the energy to run their industries in Europe than we in the United States have to pay to run our capitalist enterprises. And this is causing all kinds of political tensions, economic tensions. And yeah, you'll hear a lot of verbiage about how we're all more unified in the West than ever before. But right below the surface is enormous bitterness. And I might mention one area where it has come to the surface, because I think you'll see more of it. Mr. Biden, because his economy still hasn't recovered from the crash of 2008, let alone the pandemic, let alone the inflation, let alone the rising interest rates, a cascade of economic problems for the United States. So what is Mr. Biden doing? Well, he's trying to use the United States' financial resources to subsidize production if it happens in the United States. Well, all the European countries, led by the British, the French, the Germans, the three major economies over there, with the support, by the way, of others, are furious at the United States because they speak now in Europe and hear these words that American policy towards Ukraine in the sanctions war, and now on stimulating jobs coming back to the United States, the only jobs they see coming back are the ones that will be leaving Europe, Why? Because in Europe, the cost of energy, because of the sanctions, has made European capitalists uncompetitive in the prices they have to charge. Whereas the United States doesn't have that problem, has its own oil and gas. And if you now add subsidies from the government, when then it's unfair competition, and the Europeans are fearing that the United States is De industrializing Europe. I could go on, but I think these are enough examples that this sanctions war has opened a proverbial Pandora's box of new, fundamentally different economic and political organizations of the world economy, and that we're at the beginning of a situation that will be looked upon back historically as a major phase in the decline of the U.S. empire and of U.S. capitalism alongside it.
0: We're speaking with Richard Wolff. Richard Wolff is an esteemed, internationally recognized economist, socialist economist. I'm Brian Becker. You're listening to The Socialist Program on Breakthrough News. We're talking about the major reorganization of the world oil market As a consequence of US and Western sanctions on Russia following Russia's military intervention into Ukraine that started in February 2022. Richard, I want to pursue the same topic with you, but go in a slightly different direction. You mentioned India, which, of course, the Modi government has been a principal ally of the US government. Here's some statistics Moscow's shipment to India meaning it's oil, 1.4 million barrels a day in November compared with 36,000 barrels a day a year earlier. So from 36,000 barrels to 1.4 million barrels. In the case of China, China's importing 1.9 million barrels a day from Russia. That's up 16.5% from the same time a year ago. One of the things that you're mentioning is that there's, you called it the Pandora's box is opened. We might call it the, the unintended consequences of some political slash economic actions by major imperial powers sort of have this blowback. And we're well aware that this kind of unintended consequence is a feature, is a characteristic feature of what's going on in contemporary politics. I want to sort of reframe the big picture here, though. You have, in a way, a realignment of countries, Russia and China, and many of the countries in the global south working together at some level, not as an ideological block, not as a political block. They're not all socialist governments, but they're working together because they have mutual interests. And one of the things that really jumps out at me when we think about this in the big picture is that at the end of World War II, the U.S. thought it was going to be the dominant unipolar power in the world. And the U.S. created the United Nations, which was really under the direction of the U.S. It created the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, at Bretton Woods, the dollar, the U.S. printed dollar became the reserve currency for world trade. These were the instruments or the pillars for a unipolar world. But to their shock and amazement, the revolutions that took place in China and Vietnam and Korea and in the Middle East and national liberation movements in Africa created a second camp. It wasn't a unipolar world. There was a capitalist camp led by the United States. And then there was this alternative camp, the socialist camp led by the Soviet Union and later joined by China and others. Well, after the Soviet Union collapsed, the U.S. expectation was that they were going to have unipolar domination now. Finally, the 1946 vision would be finally realized because the other power, the socialist camp, had basically been extinguished. It had been defeated. It was gone. But here we are 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and there's the reemergence in a way of these two camps, they're not ideological anymore. It's not the socialist camp, Russia's not a socialist government, Putin's not the leader of the Soviet Communist Party, that doesn't exist anymore. But there is the identity of national interest such that even though the ideological issue is gone, communism versus capitalism, the issue of mutual interests have again created this kind of symmetry. It's not block politics per se but it resembles or has a certain resemblance to the earlier division in the world, the bipolar division in the world between a capitalist camp and a socialist camp. Let's just talk about that and, and what this means, because it, in a way, it's a return to multipolarity or bipolarity. Anyway, I want to get your take in our last few minutes.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very, very important point. It opens up the conversation in a way that I think you're quite right in doing so. Let me put it in slightly different terms. I don't think the war in the Ukraine has much to do with the Ukraine. And I don't think the war in the Ukraine even has much to do with Russia. The war in the Ukraine is a proxy. It is a substitute for an economic war that is frightening to the world and to the major combatants in that war. And those combatants are the United States and its empire on the one hand, and the People's Republic of China, which is the number one contestant to that American empire. The hope of the United States is, as our defense secretary said, to weaken Russia. If they have their fantasy to come through, it's to destroy Russia, to dismember it, to make it collapse into a group of republics or something like that. And the reason for that is not about Russia. It's about weakening an important ally of the People's Republic of China. That's the issue. And otherwise, this none of this would have happened or very differently, it would have happened. That has to be understood. One of the ways I try to get it across is with a simple statistic. The GDP, the gross domestic product, is a way we in economics give a rough idea of the size of an economy. It's a simple number gathered to reflect the total output of goods and services that a society manages per year. Okay, the GDP of Russia in recent years was in the neighborhood of one and a half trillion dollars, one and a half trillion. The GDP of the People's Republic of China is currently around 16 or 17 trillion, and the U.S. is around 21, 22 trillion. Keep those three numbers in mind. The competitor to the United States with its 21, 22 trillion is China. No other country comes close to being a comparable competitive economy. Russia is a tiny country by comparison. Russia's GDP is uh, in the neighborhood of Italy's. We are not talking about a global confrontation between the United States and Russia, or Russia and Ukraine. This is silly, misunderstands where we are. China is the competitor. China is outproducing the United States. For the last 30 years, it has grown two to three times faster each year for 20 to 30 years, unheard of. This is a society that puts together private enterprise and public enterprise, calls itself socialist, but leaves a lot of room for capitalism, both run by foreigners inside China and by Chinese capitalists. It is a new kind of hybrid. All of that has to be understood in terms of the challenge it represents to the American empire. I don't mean to scare people, but during the time when we thought that the world was struggling between capitalism and socialism, represented by the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States was absolutely dominant. The Soviet Union never represented an economic challenge, didn't come close. The Chinese do, but the Russians didn't. It's very different. During the time of capitalism versus socialism, Russia versus the U.S., we basically had, relatively speaking, peace. The previous period, the first half of the 20th century, what we had was competing capitalist powers, and we had the two worst world wars in human history, in which socialism played a very marginal role. No role in the first world war, and not much of one in the second. So I think we have to rethink where we are as a society. Capitalism is now broken into two blocks that have lots of conflict and that could end up in war, as blocks of capitalists did going into World Wars One and Two. And that the question for people who are critical of capitalism is, what in the world is the position of a socialist? Of a critic of capitalism and of its tendencies to these kinds of war inducing conflicts. That's the question. Is the conflict between the United States and China going to lead to war of the kind we have a preview of in Ukraine? Or is the United States prepared internally as well as externally to realize that just as the British Empire? tried twice to prevent the Americans from developing the next empire. Once in the war, independence war of 1775 and on, and again in 1812, before the British realized you can't do that. You can't stop human history. Is the United States trying to stop it in China by holding back on the microchips, by provoking them, by making an issue in Taiwan? Are we really going to go in that route, given what history teaches? Those are the fundamental questions that ought to be faced as we recognize that China is now a real player, and between what it can do and what the Indians can do, the options for countries around the world have become much, much more open-ended, and the security and reliability of the American empire much reduced.
0: Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program episode here on Breakthrough News. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.